Once again, thank you, Kyle, and to the team for leading us in song this morning. Well, as Gary said, it's a privilege of mine, again, to be in the pulpit and to open God's Word with you this morning. And without further ado, with that, I want to invite you to go back to the chapter that we began last week. So you can take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4 is where we'll be once again. We looked last time, the first part of this two-part series, the first six verses this week, this morning. I want to focus then our attention on the second paragraph here, verses 7 through 11. And allow me to read that for us in our hearing as we begin. So if you're there, you can follow along 1 Peter chapter 4, reading beginning in verse 7. Peter continues, and he writes, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins, and be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. What does the victorious Christian life look like? That's the question we've been essentially asking for two weeks now. What does it look like for us to live out the victory that Jesus has won by His resurrection? It's the question that we've endeavored to answer since we celebrated the resurrection two Sundays ago on Easter Sunday because Jesus did indeed win, and the resurrection proves His victory has succeeded. We celebrated that, if you remember. In fact, we celebrate that every Sunday, that Christ has arisen. We rejoice each and every Sunday in that fact that Jesus, through His resurrection, did not stay dead. He didn't stay in the grave, but defeated not only sin and death, but as we saw two weeks ago, also every evil power that exists in this world. Anything you can think of, anything that would come against you and I as believers, Christ has won victory over those things. So that at the end of chapter 3, verse 22, notice, if you remember, just to jog your memory, Peter can write now that Jesus sits victorious at the right hand of God, which is that place of preeminent power, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and power has been subjected to him. In other words, that is the Bible's way of saying what we've just been saying. Jesus is one. Jesus is victorious. The empty tomb is proof of that. 
There's no debate there, at least there shouldn't be. But the question that we've been asking in the series doesn't so much have to do with the fact of this victory as much as it has to do with, might we say, the impact of this victory for us as believers as we live out our lives here on earth. How does that help us? How does it change the way that we live? And so last week, that's the question we began asking. So what of the resurrection? How does the reality of Christ's victory change the way that we are to live in our temporary stay, as Peter would put it, here on earth? What does it mean for us who are in Christ and who have, as Paul would say, been made alive together with Him and who are now seated, indeed, at the right hand of the Father with Him? We share in His victory, don't we, if you're united with Christ in the gospel? What does the victorious Christian life look like then, now, post-resurrection? What are its marks? What are its characteristics? How would you answer that this morning? How would you answer that? Well, last time we pointed out to you, Peter, Peter begins to answer that question for us in chapter 4, and that's why we're studying this section. This very practical question, implications from the resurrection, Peter begins then to write and answer that question. And we saw, if you remember in verses 1 through 6, that the victorious Christian life is first to be a life of suffering, of suffering, perhaps not what we would expect to characterize a life of victory, is it? And yet, it makes perfect sense if you consider that Jesus is our example and our pattern because He too had to suffer first at the hands of evil men before He was raised victorious. And so Peter says to us, In case we're struggling, chapter 4, verse 12, you remember, don't be surprised. That's why Peter writes this section. He doesn't want us to be caught off guard. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised, Christian, when you find out that the life that now shares in Christ's victory and will share in his glory must first also share in his suffering. Don't be surprised. Expectations are everything, aren't they? That was verses 1 through 6, and we looked at then several reasons last time why we believe that, why Peter says the new victorious Christian life must be a life of suffering, and we won't review those for the sake of time, but you can go back and listen to the recording in case you missed it. But this morning then, as we move on to verses 7 through 11, we're going to see a few more marks of this victorious Christian life. Specifically, we'll see three more, three more marks, if you're taking notes, or characteristics, you could call them, of the victorious Christian life. And I'll I'll just give them to you up front. The victorious Christian life, beloved, is not only a life of suffering, but it is also a life of prayer. Verse 7. Verse 7. 
a life of love. Verses 8 and 9. And lastly, a life of service. Verses 10 and 11. This is what it looks like. This is the victorious Christian life. A life of prayer, a life of love, and a life of service. Now, before we look at these, though, specifically, I want you to notice once again that Peter does indeed still have in his mind Christ's victory. In case you thought he drifted from that idea, look at the text. The beginning of verse 7, this is how we know victory is still on his mind because he writes here, the end of all things is near. Now, if you were just to dive bomb into that and read that by itself, you might think Peter is here being all doom and gloom. Warning of judgment to come, and while judgment will come, I don't believe that is Peter's focus in this statement. By declaring here in Peter's context, the end of all things is near, Peter is essentially saying that the finish line, beloved, of redemptive history has drawn near, and then the tense of the verb is that it remains near. It is imminent. In other words, we are living, Christian, you and I, in the final stretch, so to speak, of a race that is guaranteed to end in our victory because Christ has won. This is a statement of victory. This is to encourage us. And it's encouraging, isn't it? How Peter's audience, who was presently suffering, would have been encouraged by this statement. See, I, again, I don't think this is speaking about the destruction of the world or the judgment of sinners, at least not in this context primarily, though that will no doubt happen and come also. That will be the focus of his second letter, but not this one. Here, Peter's focus is to encourage those, those of us who belong to Christ and, and, and yet are suffering in this life. So he says, the end of all things is near. It's about to be over. And when, he's, when he says that, he's talking about the fruition of the believer's hope. All throughout First Peter, let me just give you a few samples here. That day is a good thing. He refers to that final day when we will, chapter 1, verse 9, obtain as the outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls. That is what comes when the end comes for the Christian. Chapter 1, verse 7, he speaks of it when the, the revelation of Jesus Christ will result in, listen to these words, praise and glory and honor. Chapter 2, verse 12, he says, that day, in that day, men will glorify God. In the day of visitation, chapter 4, verse 13, it will be a day of the revelation of his glory when you will rejoice with exaltation. In chapter 5, verse 4, when the chief shepherd will appear. 
and you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You see, for Peter in this letter, this statement, the end of all things is near. It's, it's not so much a warning as it is an encouragement because it marks a day of victory. When Christ will return as he promised and bring an end, beloved, to, to our sojourn in this sin-cursed world. That is what Peter is telling us has drawn near and remains near. It is at the door. It is at hand. Beloved, the day of your victory is close at hand. How shall you then live? Maybe for you NASCAR fans, if it had helped to illustrate it this way, if redemptive history were compared to the Daytona 500, we would be living in lap 199 out of 200, or 200 laps in the Daytona 500. In the resurrection, with the resurrection and with the ascension of Jesus, God essentially has waved the white flag telling us that we're on the last lap. The end of all things is near. Therefore, notice verse 7, therefore, Peter writes, here's what should characterize your life as victory is about to be yours. What does the victorious Christian life look like? Notice the second half of verse 7. First, the victorious Christian life should be a life of prayer. It should be a life of prayer. Peter says, therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit that is for the purpose of prayer. For the purpose of prayer, there are two verbs here that should really be taken together, both of which have as their goal this last phrase, the life of prayer or in many prayers. But no, notice the first command here, translated be of sound judgment. It's, it's elsewhere translated in the New Testament, uh, just be sensible. Be sensible. And it is a command to make sure that, Christian, you and I are spiritually sane and not insane. In fact, you can read of the state of mind, Mark chapter 5, verse 15, after Jesus, you know the story, perhaps casts the legion of demons out of the Gerasene demoniac. Mark records, he uses this same word that this man was all of a sudden clothed, and here's our word, and in his right mind, no longer demon-possessed crazy. That's just the word. This command then means to be level-headed. It means to be reasonable. It means to be in the right frame of mind with sound judgment. It's the it's the exact opposite of being irrational. And so when you apply that here then to prayer, listen, Peter is commanding us here, beloved, first to think rightly and reasonably and sensibly for the purpose of prayer. The sensible Christian is a praying Christian. In fact, we might go so far as to say that prayerlessness is a sign of spiritual insanity. 
If you are a Christian and you don't pray, you are out of your spiritual mind. What are you thinking? Peter says. Why? Because it would be irrational to think that we can make it to the end without a constant dependence on God. But if you want to live the Christian life, if you want to live the victorious Christian life, what does it look like? It is a life of prayer. You must be of sound judgment for the purpose of prayer. But notice the second twin command here. Peter says that not only must we be sensible, we also must be sober for the purpose of prayer. And that that word is just what it sounds like as we are that as we as we tend to use it, if sensibility for that previous term was the opposite of insanity, then sobriety here is the opposite of drunkenness. It's the opposite of drunkenness. It's the opposite of someone who has who's who's under the influence of something else and, and who has had their senses dulled and inhibitions removed. And then Peter says here, instead, we must maintain, we must be mentally alert and in full possession of our faculties and our feelings. That is how we are to live and pray. Do you pray that way? Listen, think about this for a moment. What are the implications then for your prayer life? Look, you can't pray. You can't pray like this if you're drunk. You can't pray like this if you're in a trance. You know, some people think that you're really communing when you just shut your mind off and just, just kind of go and it's gibberish. I have no idea what I'm saying, but I'm really communing with the Lord. That's not Christian prayer. You can't pray while you're asleep. You can't pray while you're in a coma. You can't pray. You can't even pray when you're rightly, when you're distracted. Peter is telling us here that Christian prayer, beloved, engages the mind. Prayer in this sense requires us to exercise mental discipline and self-control. That's the idea here. That is how the victorious Christian prays. The alert Christian because the end is near. In other words, just think about some more implications here. We don't, we don't pray random chaos. We don't pray, like I said, gibberish that no one, including ourselves, understands. No, no, our prayers should not be flailing thoughts and speculations. And yes, you might say, well, don't we, don't, don't we have bold access to God now? And can't we, can't we just voice our mind in His presence? And, and my answer to that is, well, Yes, we have bold access, but that doesn't mean carelessness. We can't blaspheme God in our prayers. If we could just say whatever we wanted, however we wanted, then God wouldn't have taught us how to pray. Listen, God is not necessarily honored by an unsanctified stream of consciousness in our prayers. Now, I'm not saying that you have to rehearse everything before you pray it or write it down. At the the very least, though, what Peter is commanding here is that we are careful and intentional and purposeful about our prayers. Do you pray that way? 
like Peter David's quote here, he says, this is what Jesus meant when he said to his disciples, watch, be alert, and pray. For proper prayer is not, listen, it's not an opiate or escape, but I love this picture, but rather a function of clear vision and a seeking of even clearer vision from God. And then he adds, it is only through clear communication with headquarters that a soldier can effectively stand guard. That's how we pray. That's how we live the victorious Christian life. So Peter says, this is what it looks like. It is a life of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer because victory cannot be had without clear and constant communication with our commander. But notice... Notice next, the victorious Christian life is not only a life of prayer, but it's also a life of love. It's a life to be marked by love. And did you notice that for the rest of this passage, so interesting, Peter shifts now from the vertical, that's prayer, to the horizontal. Three times For the next three verses, do you notice? He says, one another. Love one another, verse 8. Be hospitable to one another, verse 9. Serve one another, verse 10. You know what that tells me? That That the victorious Christian life is not lived alone. You don't win by yourself, Peter says. You need one another. The life of victory is a life of community, Peter says. Do you believe that this morning? You think you can win on your own? Peter says you can't. Notice verses 8 and 9, how the victorious Christian life is then a life of love. It's to be a life demonstrated by love. Peter writes, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And be hospitable to one another without complaint. Now here, Peter first, notice the progression here. He first describes the kind of love that we're to have for one another. And then he gives a reason for that love. And then he follows that by a specific expression of that love in hospitality. But notice first how Peter describes this love that we're to have for one another. He says it's to be above all. It's to be above all. The preposition here can, can mean before if we're just thinking in terms of priority. In other words, Peter is saying here that this love is to be the highest priority for us as we live in community with others. That is what the Christian life looks like. Do you prioritize the body of Christ this morning? I can tell you if I follow you around and that's not the case of your life, you're not living the victorious Christian life. You can't do it that way. Peter says, above all, love. But notice also, not only this high priority, but notice Peter calls this love fervent. Or if you're reading the ESV, it's translated there earnestly. And the word is, a, it's, it's a great picture. It's a compound word that literally means stretched out. I like that. 
And it describes, as one writer put it, a love that is both constant and intense. Notice the term was used to describe a horse at full gallop. Just picture that. All the muscles just rippling in the legs. Or to picture, the writer goes on, the taut muscle of strenuous and sustained effort as of an athlete. I love that picture. That This is how you're to love one another. Do you love like this? This is the kind of love that Peter is commanding us to make sure that we possess. This, this is the language of a love that that bends over backwards, that stretches to the uttermost, love that persists despite difficulties, a love that, that, that stretches out until it can stretch no more. A friend, let me ask you, when was the last time that you stretched in your love for someone? When was the last time you inconvenienced yourself and your life This is what Peter calls us to. This is a mark of the victorious Christian life. Notice next, though, that Peter gives us a direct reason why it must be this kind of love. Because love covers a multitude of sins. That's why it has to stretch. That's why it has to be intense. Beloved, the reality is, I don't know if you noticed, that the victorious Christian life is lived in community. And in that community, newsflash for you, there are a multitude of sinners. <laughs> and along with a multitude of sinners, you have a multitude of sins. <laughs> and Peter says here, only love can cover that. Otherwise, you would Bite and devour one another. That's not the victorious Christian life. Only this kind of love can forgive and absorb and overlook the offenses of others without stirring up greater strife. Proverbs 10 verse 12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. That is what this kind of love does. It doesn't continue, as Peter would say in chapter 3 verse 9, returning evil for evil or insult for insult. That's not what this love does. Rather, this kind of love lets the vicious cycle of sin die a quiet and lonely death, smothered somewhere with a blanket of forgiveness and mercy. That's what love does. Love of this kind, willingly and fervently, we could say, buries the vices of others and and covers over them the rich soil of grace so as to never dig them up again. This is what marks the victorious Christian life. My friend, it it is not a sign of victory. But let me just say, if you are set on winning every argument, it's not a sign of victory. You don't display the power of the resurrection by putting others down like that. By strong-arming them, by bulldozing everyone who sins against you or disagrees with you. That is not a display of gospel power. Rather, victory is marked by the presence of a love that forgives, that bends over backwards to extend mercy to those who need forgiveness. 
Because, Christian, that is what Christ has done for you. But notice Peter goes on here to give us a tangible expression then of this kind of love as well. In verse 9, he says, and be hospitable to one another without complaint. Now, you may be wondering why I put this under the life of love, even though your maybe English translation makes it look like a separate standalone command. Well, because the original text actually doesn't have a verb here, it literally just says, right after the command to love, just says hospitality without complaint. And furthermore, it makes sense under this life of love when you realize that the, the word here for hospitality is, is actually a compound word that literally means the love of strangers. It's, it's the love, it's an expression of love to those who are not like you. And so MacArthur writes that this is an expression of love that goes beyond the circle of a Christian's friends to other believers they don't even know. Let me ask you, does your love extend there? We just think of our congregation. There's a lot of people who've come in the past year, some of whom are unfamiliar to you, maybe don't dress like you, maybe don't talk like you. Does your love extend beyond your little clique of people? It should. Because that's the mark of a victorious Christian life. What is this practice of hospitality? Well, in Peter's context, it was a couple of things probably. One, of course, what we would imagine is providing food and shelter and fellowship for others who were in need. And abs- this was an absolute necessity in those days for Christians who were traveling because you couldn't just check yourself into a Holiday Inn Express. That's just not how it worked back then. In fact, many of those places were full of the kind of debauchery that Christians sought to avoid. So traveling in a hostile society hospitality was absolutely essential for Christians who wanted to stay with other Christians. But it's also likely a reference to, as well, this practice, not just of housing, um, allowing people to stay overnight, but it's it was probably referring also to this idea of hosting gatherings for the church in your home because they didn't have buildings like this. That wasn't as common, right? They, they met in houses. They met in homes. And so you can imagine, let's just invite next Sunday, everybody over to my house. <laughs> it's a lot of work. It's not easy. You add on top of that what one commentator points out, this form of hospitality could then be quite costly if as the society was watching, if it marked the host family as a target for anti-Christian persecution. It's difficult. So you can imagine here then, Peter knew that this would indeed stretch some in their love. So he adds here, notice, this little phrase, without complaint, without grumbling. It's a word that refers 
to the annoyed muttering and mumbling under one's breath you know, after your guest takes the last piece of chicken or whatever. <laughs> you know, that can be hidden and unnoticed maybe by others, but it's not hidden to God. It reveals the true condition of your heart as you are loving Fervent love is not this way. Twin City Bible Church, let's just back up here and just ask the question. Are we living the victorious Christian life? Are we opening ourselves up to the needs of others, even those brothers and sisters that we don't know, who aren't in our circle of immediate friends? On Sunday morning, do you reach out? in love to others who are different than you. That's the victorious Christian life. It's a life of love. But finally, notice, notice verses 10 and 11. The victorious Christian life is also a life of service. It's a life of service. Verses 10 and 11, as each one has received a special gift, employ it. Here's the command, in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And whoever speaks then is to do so as one who's speaking the utterances or the oracles of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, truly, <clears throat> these last two verses could be a sermon all by themselves, and thought did cross my mind to ask Jay next week to just put it off. But here, essentially, gives Paul, Peter gives Peter gives us a mini theology of spiritual gifts, and it's a great little package in just two verses. Notice first how Peter says that. Each one has received a special gift. What does that say? That tells us that, beloved, every single Christian, every one of you in here who confesses the name of Christ, who's truly regenerate and has received life from above, has received a spiritual gift, whether you know what it is or not. (laughs) You have one. You can't say you don't, you can say, I don't know what it is, but you can't say, I don't have one. There are no exceptions to this because Paul, because Peter says here, each one. Not, not that one person has all the gifts, let's be clear about that. Nobody has the total package, right? Romans 12 verse 3 says to each a measure of faith, but Peter says here that At the very least, every single one of you has been given at least one gift. And so, one commentator writes that God God has given to one something and not everything. Why? That we might serve one another and that none should bury his talent. We need one another, don't we? The eye needs the ears, needs the, the mouth, needs the nose, needs the hands, needs the feet. That is what the Bible teaches And so if you have a new life in Christ, you've been given the gift to use in service to the body 
question this morning is, are you, are you using it? Are you, are you living the victorious Christian life? Are you serving? Are you serving anywhere? Peter, Peter is here saying that, we, we might put it this way, there are no bench warmers in the life of the church. There's no sideline in this, in this Christian life. According to this passage, there are no useless members. The victorious Christian life requires that every single one of us contributes in our own unique way, in the way that God has gifted us. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul would say it is according to the proper working of each individual part that the body of Christ is built up. And so if you're a Christian, look, you can't legitimately claim that God has not given you a way to serve in the church. Look, as pastors, we hear all that time, we, we hear that all the time. Well, there's nowhere for me to serve. Really? Nowhere? Again, so as not to be misunderstood, not, this isn't to say that everyone should have an official recognized position or office or title within the church in order to serve. And I think that's what some people, that's, that's what some people mean when they say that. But you don't need a badge. You don't need to, nobody needs to know about it officially. But it's not what Paul says here. But what he does, that's not what Peter says here. What he does say is that everyone has been given a unique Ability and skill by God to be employed for the sake of others. That's, that's all he's saying. And notice Peter says also, each one has, been, has received the special gift. As each one has received the special gift, employ it in serving one another. That's, there's the command. Literally serving each other with it. With what? The gift that God has given you. The victorious Christian life, beloved, is a life marked by service. And notice, the service of others and not self. God didn't give you your spiritual gift to build up yourself, but to build up the body of Christ. And so then notice how we are to serve with our gifts we are to serve with them. The text says, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That's how. And beloved, stewards don't own anything. Right? We, 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 we must be reminded this morning that no matter how gifted we are, no matter how successful our ministry is, we're not owners. We're not we don't own anything. We don't, we're not masters over the ministries that God has entrusted to us. They don't belong to us. And so there's, there's no place, we could say, in the body of Christ for being territorial about areas of ministry. Someone may come along who can do what you do even better, and you should, you should rejoice in that. Peter says we're simply managers and stewards of that which belongs to the Lord. And because we are stewards, we also have a responsibility with our gifts, which means, once again, 
that it's not optional that we use them. Why have you been given them in the first place? Paul, Paul, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 4 verse 2, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Beloved, are you trustworthy? Are you a faithful steward of what God has entrusted to you this morning? And notice what Peter says that we are stewards of here. I love this. We are stewards of the manifold grace of God. My friends, this is the victorious Christian life, and this is why Peter would say here that it can't be lived apart from community. It has to be lived in community because as we faithfully serve one another in the body with the gifts that God has given us, Peter says here it puts on display to the world the multifaceted, the manifold, the variety, the multicolored grace of God. Not just one boring shade, but the whole spectrum The word describes that which is different varieties. In other words, not all the gifts, spiritual gifts are the same, but they all put God's grace on display in a unique and different way. And and rather than listing all the different manifold kinds of gifts here, notice how Peter simply speaks then of two major categories in verse 11. And I think this is so helpful, right? Of all the lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament, this is the simplest. He gives us two buckets. <laughs> I love that. Notice, whoever speaks is to, do one, is, is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. There's one category. Second bucket, whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So clearly there's, there's two categories. Every single one of the gifts that you, could, that you could conjure up in your mind. Whatever God has given to you can fall under one of these two categories. Speaking gifts or serving gifts. And Peter even tells us for each one of those how each one of those must be employed. Notice to those who have speaking gifts... We are to speak as one who is speaking the utterances or the oracles of God. You know, you know what that is? You know what that means? In other words, we must strive to say only what God has said in His Word. But if you have the gift of speaking, Peter is saying here, don't, don't imagine that you could just open your mouth and, and say whatever needs to be said off the cuff. Well, because I'm gifted. He actually, he actually warns especially those who have that gift of speaking to exercise their gift with great care in this way that they make sure that their words are in agreement with Scripture. And to those who have gifts of service, Peter adds, we are to serve then by the strength which God supplies. You know what the alternative to serving by the strength which God supplies is? Serving in your own strength. We've all experienced that, haven't we? Serving in our own strength, relying on our own effort, which, as one writer says, is a recipe for ultimate ineffectiveness and burnout. So Peter reminds us here that apart from Christ, 
and the power which he supplies, John 15, 5, we can do nothing. We can do nothing. There's no spiritual strength whatsoever outside of what God himself has given. Psalm 127, verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Listen, beloved, we, we, we are victorious indeed, but we aren't victorious if we rely on our own abilities. We are powerless instruments, inanimate objects, spiritually useless until God picks us up and uses us. And even after that, we must still acknowledge that he's the one, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 7, who causes the growth. My friends, is that how you serve? Is that how you serve? Are you serving? And finally, notice the ultimate goal of the use of these spiritual gifts here, Paul or Peter writes, so that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I couldn't help but think of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 10, verse 15. There he, he asks the obvious question. I love the imagery because it applies so well here. He says, is, is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? And the answer, of course, is no, Christian. So neither can you or I boast when God works in and through us to accomplish His will in the body. And it may be obvious, but it still needs to be said here. The ultimate goal for our serving is not our own glory, but God's glory. That is what marks the victorious Christian life. Matthew Poole would then write, God doth not adorn you with his gifts so as to bereave himself of his own glory. <laughs> That's not why he gave you those gifts. But that you should give him the honor Beloved, the victorious Christian life is a life of suffering, of prayer, of love, and of service, and all of that to the glory of God. In the end, He is to be praised. Listen, the end is near, isn't it? We're going we're to cross the finish line someday. And it won't be because of your doing. It'll be because of Christ. It'll be because of the victory that he won. And yet, you will be there, Christian. How shall you now live? Christ is the true victor, though we share in his victory. May we live according to it. And by his grace, for his glory alone. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this text. What an encouragement it is to ponder that, that at your resurrection and your ascension, you didn't just leave us here with no resources. 
You, you have changed things. But things are different now. Though the world may not see, as we saw last week, they may mock us, they may kill us, they may condemn us. But here, amongst your people, what glory there is to behold when we live out this resurrection position. Father, strengthen us to do so. Make us more and more faithful. Drive us in light of the end that is near to greater prayer. Cause us to stretch in our love for one another and empower our service so that we might labor and that it would not be in vain. Lord, and in the end, may you receive all glory and power and honor and dominion as is due your name. We pray. In Christ Jesus, amen.